Good evening. More revelations of Trump's plans to overthrow the 2020 presidential election. Russia says Americans captured in Ukraine might be executed as the Baltic fleet embarks on exercises near the Russian port of Kaliningrad. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Tuesday, June 21st, 2022. The Russian Navy ended operational drills in the Baltic Sea near the uh, what's called the exclave of Kaliningrad. The Baltic Fleet Press Office released video of ship crews performing tasks aimed at repelling air attacks of a simulated enemy and firing at targets imitating enemy ships and coastal artillery. Цель вошла в зону поражения. Предлагаю провести пристрелку первого. According to the Baltic Fleet Press Service, anti-submarine aircraft and helicopters took part, including up to 60 surface warships, boats, and support vessels. The exercise reportedly included about 10,000 troops, 45 aircraft and helicopters, up to 2,000 pieces of combat and special equipment were also involved in the maneuvers, showing that Russia possibly has much larger forces available than have been shown so far in the fighting in Ukraine. Russia has demanded that Lithuania, which is the former Soviet republic that's situated between Belarus and Russia and the Russian exclave, as they call it, of Kaliningrad, immediately reverse new restrictions on shipments of Russian goods that are subject to European Union sanctions, a new sign of escalation in the war with Ukraine. And Russian ambassador to the United Kingdom, Andrei Kellen, said on Friday that the sanctions imposed on Moscow by European countries due to the military offensive in Ukraine are fighting back against London's economy. The diplomat also added that the Western arms supplies to Ukraine didn't improve Kyiv's position, but worsened it. So-called support is just pushing Ukraine to the brink of disaster, to the abyss, that further prolongation of conflict by this British support with weapon, with money, which is allocated only for war, will make British economy in ruin in the uh, in the coming future. I do believe it is already high time the Ukrainian conflict has striken the United Kingdom's economy. This is not correct. At the moment, UK is now in the poorest situation among 20 most developed countries in the world. The national gross economy will be slightly more than 3%, and next year it will be a stagnation, it will be a zero growth. It has made a position of Ukraine worse. And that's Andrew Kellen, Russia's ambassador to the United Kingdom. A strike by railway workers has paralyzed London today. Workers say they are sick and tired of inflation and a stumbling economy. We'll hear more later in the newscast. Meanwhile, Pentagon spokesperson John Kirby has a new job. Now the former military man is coordinator for strategic communication for the National Security Council. Yesterday, Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov said two Americans captured by Russian separatists in Ukraine were not covered by the Geneva Convention as they were not regular troops. He says they'd shot at Russian servicemen and put their lives in danger, raising the possibility of a death penalty. Today, Kirby said Peskov's statement was outrageous. Appalling that a public official in Russia would even suggest the death penalty for two American citizens that were in Ukraine. We're going to continue to try to learn what we can here about this and again, stay in touch as much as we can with the families. I don't think it'd be useful for us to get into hypotheticals right now, Jackie. I mean, we've got uh, we got more homework here to do, uh, but I do think it's important for us to make it clear, totally appalling for even the suggestion uh, that uh, that that result could be the outcome here for these uh, two individuals. 
Hey, Jim, thanks for uh, John, the Chinese have imported a record amount of oil from Russia, um, and the trade between the two countries is, is growing. Um, and what, what message do you have to the Chinese related to this? I think this is just a piece of uh, China's willingness uh, to continue to go along with, uh, with Russia. And we're seeing this as a, um, yet another example of uh, a growing collaboration between China and Russia with respect to, to Ukraine. Um, and uh, we have, as we've said at the outset, called on China to, to be a responsible power here and to join the rest of the world uh, in condemning what Russia has done in Ukraine and in enforcing sanctions against Russia for it. So it's just another example. And look, it's also another example of how um, global security really is interconnected. It's not just about security on the European continent. It's connected. What's happening in Ukraine, this is a perfect example of how it's connected to, to national security, our national security interests, and those of allies and partners in the Indo-Pacific as well. But at what point do they rise to the level where they're breaking sanctions or pushing the line for those sanctions that the U.S. Uh, would like to impose? Well, again, they haven't been participants in, this, in the sanction regime so far. Also, India has been buying a lot of the Russian oil that the Europeans aren't buying. So how does the administration keep financial pressure on Russia? And what does this say about U.S.-Indian relations that Prime Minister Modi is making these purchases? Yeah, India is also a very uh, key strategic partner uh, in the Indo-Pacific region. Uh, and, uh, uh, and there's uh, many ways that that, that partnership uh, 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 represents itself both in defense and security, e economic as well. Um, I think we'll let Indian leaders speak uh, to their economic policies. Uh, what, what I can just tell you is uh, we value this bilateral relationship with India uh, and we continue to want, uh, obviously every country has to make their decisions for themselves, these are sovereign decisions, but we want uh, as much pressure put internationally on Russia as possible. There needs to be, just last point, there needs to be costs and consequences for what Mr. Putin is doing. Anything will President Biden be asking G7 leaders to do next week to bring down the cost of energy and bring down the cost of food? I'm not going to get ahead of the... And that was John Kirby. He's now the coordinator for strategic communications for the National Security Council. And as reported, American basketball player Brittany Grinner, who has been detained in Russia for possession of a small amount of cannabis, faces criminal prosecution and a possible long prison sentence in the decidedly pot-unfriendly nation. Today, her husband, Sherelle Grinner, said she's been denied communication by Russia and has no idea what condition Brittany is in. So Saturday would have been the first time that I've heard BG's voice since, um, yeah, um, February the 17th. She was only allowed to call the number given directly to the embassy, and they did not answer. I find it unacceptable on our embassy, on all the government personnel that keeps telling me that my wife is a priority. How could she be a priority when in the same breath that you're telling me that you're also not even checking something as simple as the fact that we scheduled a call during a non-business day? It's ridiculous. Not being able to hear her voice real time, I have no understanding besides what people tell me um, is my wife's condition. Sherelle Grinner, she's the husband of Brittany Grinner, who is a 
basketball player who has uh, been detained in Russia for possession of a small amount of cannabis. And thousands of protesters marched into Ecuador's capital on Monday on the eighth day of anti-government rallies. The demonstrations in Quito are led by indigenous people angry at high fuel prices and demanding social and economic reforms. And that's the scene in Quito, Ecuador. Videos show crowds of protesters heading towards the capital on trucks and waving flags, as well as barricades erected on some of the roads. Nationwide demonstrations against President Guillermo Lasso's economic policies have ramped up across the country in recent days. Lasso extended the state of emergency in six provinces, including a nighttime curfew in the capital, as he seeks to quell the unrest. And Londoners reacted to the biggest railway workers strike in 30 years that affected transportation all over the country today. Around 40,000 railway workers walked away, something that they are going to repeat on Thursday and Saturday after a disagreement with government over pay. To make matters worse for commuters, London underground workers also went on strike. Some of the commuters expressed their understanding to the workers' cause, but on the other hand, some stated their disagreement with the railway workers' decision to go on strike. I think it's the only tool that people, working class people have got, isn't it, to to fight injustices or better working conditions. And I think it's the start of a lot of strikes. I think a lot of people are going to be standing up for what they think that, you know, because the cost of living can't keep going up. How are we going to manage? People can't afford to pay the rent, the council tax, the electric gas bill. It's just an impossible situation, isn't it? I know all the global situations, I think we all know that, but I think at the end of the day, um, governments are there to govern. And they have to find a way through this, like they did with the pandemic. No, no. So, I think I, I think I support them. Yeah, good luck to them. No, I don't support the strike today. Don't get me wrong. I think people all want to have a good living wage, but you know we've just come out of COVID. We're still suffering the after effects of Brexit as well, and you know it's putting the, the country to ransom. Really, um, you know people are trying to get back to work as well. You know they've been encouraged to go into offices. They're encouraged to get back into the jobs, and they can't because they can't get there. And the strikes are a major test for Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who called on the unions to compromise on their demands. So far, the government has refused to intervene directly in the talks, which are between the unions and Network Rail, a company that manages the country's railway system, as well as the privatized train operators. Privatized. And here in New York, and the reason I jump ahead to a local story is because it's all related to the economic fallout uh, now after years of, uh, of uh, COVID regulations and what has been happening to the economy because of uh, the fallout of the COVID pandemic. Here in New York at Cooper Union at 7 p.m., the Rent uh, Guidelines Board is expected to improve, approve increases in one-year leases by between 2 to 4% and on two-year leases in the city of rent-stabilized apartments by 4 to 6%. Many tenants have been arguing for a rent freeze or rollback while landlords were seeking even higher increases, but the panel has signaled its intent to support a middle-ground approach at a meeting last month. The expected vote will take place, as I said earlier, at Cooper Union, where um, – it usually occurs, which is in Astor Place in Manhattan. Just take the six train, get off at Astor Place.
And in Texas, the Department of Public Safety Director Steve McCraw told the state Senate committee Tuesday, that's today, that the law enforcement response to the Ovalde shooting, school shooting, was an abject failure and police could have stopped the shooter at Robb Elementary School three minutes after arriving were it not for the indecisiveness of the on-scene commander who he said places the lives of officers before those of children. Eight days since the senseless massacre of 19 innocent children and their two teachers at Robb Elementary School, there's compelling evidence that the law enforcement response to the attack at Robb Elementary was an abject failure and antithetical to everything we've learned over the last two decades since the Columbine massacre. Three minutes after the subject entered the West Building, there was sufficient number of armed officers wearing body armor to isolate, distract, and neutralize the subject. The only thing stopping a hallway of dedicated officers from entering room 111 and 112 was the on-scene commander, who decided to place the lives of officers before the lives of children. The officers had weapons, the children had none. The officers had body armor, the children had none. The officers had training, the subject had none. One error, 14 minutes and eight seconds. That's how long the children waited and the teachers waited in rooms 111 to be rescued. And while they waited, the on-seat commander waited for radio and rifles. Then he waited for shields. Then he waited for SWAT. Lastly, he waited for a key that was never needed. And that is... Colonel Steve McCraw, he's in charge of the Texas Department of Public Safety. And today was the fourth installment in the January 6th committee, Congressional Committee, Select Congressional Committee, looking into the uh, role of President Donald Trump in the January 6, 2020 invasion of the United States Capitol. Today, former President Trump was directly in was directly involved by testimony in a scheme to put forward slates of false pro-Trump electors in states won by Joseph Biden. The uh, committee revealed that with a deposition video from Rona McDaniel, the Republican National Committee chairwoman, who testified that Trump had personally called her about helping further the scheme. And then he later put conservative lawyer John Eastman on the phone with Dan McDaniel to talk about the importance of the RNC helping the campaign gather those contingent electors. Uh, one of my uh, favorite uh, clips from today's hearings were the two women who worked in Georgia counting ballots that night, longtime um, Georgia election workers who had really dedicated their lives for a small pittance and uh, towards uh, furthering voter rights and helping people in a state that had once had a long uh, history of preventing uh, people of color and black people from voting uh, to get them to the polls. So uh, it was an interesting comment to hear Shea Moss testifying in person about the response that she got when President Trump, the president of the United States, decided to personally attack her by name. I'm going to give out my business card. I don't transfer calls. I um, don't want anyone knowing my name. I don't want to go anywhere with my mom because she might yell my name out over the grocery aisle or something. I don't go to the grocery store at all. I haven't been anywhere um, at all. I've gained about 60 pounds. I just don't do nothing anymore. I don't want to go anywhere. I second guess everything that I do. 
Um, it's affecting my life in a, in a major way, in every way, all because of lies. For me doing my job, same thing I've been doing forever. Even though the accusations against Moss were quickly debunked by state and federal investigators, they went viral, amplified by Trump and right-wing media outlets. Moss was in the um, video working with uh, – there was a video that was uh, shown of the two women working, and uh, there was this allegation that they were uh, bringing in false ballots and black suitcases, all debunked by the attorney general. The former attorney general himself also debunked them. Uh, Ruby Freeman – is Moss's mother. She was working with her that day, and she started getting those harassing calls and texts as well. There is nowhere I feel safe. Nowhere. Do you know how it feels to have the president of the United States to target you? The president of the United States is supposed to represent every American not to target one, but he targeted me, Lady Ruby, a small business owner, a mother, a proud American citizen who stand up to help Fulton County run an election in the middle of the pandemic. The woman known as Lady Ruby, who has spent her life trying to extend voter rights and, the, uh, and access to voting to the people of Georgia. This is the response that she got from the president of the United States. And there was some other interesting revelations from today's hearings. Senator Ron Johnson, Republican of Wisconsin, sought to hand deliver fake electors from his state and from Michigan to Vice President Mike Pence. That's according to texts released by the committee investigating the attack. An aide to Pence told of Johnson's intention, responding to an aide to the senator, don't give that to him. A staffer for Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson texted a staffer for Vice President Pence just minutes before the beginning of the joint session. This staffer stated that Senator Johnson wished to hand deliver to the vice president the fake electors votes from Michigan and Wisconsin. The vice president's aide unambiguously instructed them not to deliver the fake votes to the vice president. Even though the fake elector slates were transmitted to Congress and the executive branch, the vice president held firm in his position that his role was to count lawfully submitted electoral votes. Joseph R. Biden Jr. of the state of Delaware has received 306 votes. Donald J. Trump of the state of Florida has received 232 votes which is what he did when the joint session resumed on January 6th after the attack on the Capitol. And that, of course, was not Mr. Bowers, but a researcher with the committee. It was Bowers, though, who spoke moments later about a call he got from Rudy Giuliani asking him to decertify legitimate ballots. And what did Mr. Biggs ask you to do? I believe that was the day that the, the vote was occurring to each state to have certification or to declare the, the certification of the electors and he asked if I would sign on both to a letter that had been sent from my state and or that I would support the decertification of the electors and I said I would not. Then he said he got a call from John Eastman who was the person who was basically thinking up this plan that was being followed by Trump and his supporters to overthrow the election. And what did uh, Dr. Eastman want you to do? Um, that we would, 
in fact, vote, take a vote to um, overthrow, or I shouldn't say overthrow, that we would decertify the electors and that that because we had plenary authority to do so. And he cited Article 2, Section 1, I think it's Clause 2, uh, and uh, said that in his opinion that gave us the authority if there was I don't recall him saying sufficient evidence, but there was some call or some strong reason to do so that we, or justification to do so that we could do that. And that he was asking that we, he, he, his suggestion was that we would do it. And I said, uh, again, I took an oath for me to take that, to do what you do would, would be counter to my oath. I don't recall if it was in that conversation, clearly, that we talked more about the oath. But I said, what would you have me do? And he said, uh, just do it and let the court sort it out. And I said, you're asking me to do something that's never been done in history, the history of the United States. And I'm going to put my state through that without sufficient proof and that's going to be good enough with me that I would I would put us through that my state that I swore to uphold both in Constitution and in law no sir he said well that's my suggestion would be just just do it and let the courts uh, figure it all out and I he didn't use that exact phrase but that was what he, his meaning was, and I, I declined, and I believe that was close to the end of our phone call. Uh, and again, this took place after you had recently spoken with President Trump and told him that you wouldn't do anything illegal for him. And former President Trump, in his statement released today, accused House Speaker, Arizona House Speaker Russell Rusty Bowers, who we just heard of being a rhino, which means Republican in name only, and said that Bowers had once told him the election was rigged. I wanted to ask you about a statement that former President Trump issued, um, which I received just prior to the hearing. Uh, have you had a chance to review that statement? I, my counsel called from Arizona and read it to me. Yes, sir. Uh, in that statement, I won't read it in its entirety. Uh, former President Trump begins by calling you a rhino, uh, Republican in name only. He then references a conversation uh, in November 2020 in which he claims that you told him that the election was rigged and that he had won Arizona. Now, to quote uh, the former president, during the conversation, he told me the election was rigged and that I won Arizona, unquote. Did you have such a conversation with the president? I did have a conversation with the president. Um, that certainly isn't it, but there were parts of it that are true, but there are parts that are not, sir. And the part that I read you, uh, is that false? Anywhere, anyone, anytime has said that I said the election was rigged, that would not be true. And that and is... And when uh, the, the former president in his statement today claimed that you told him that he won Arizona, is that also false? That is also false. 
It's Arizona House Speaker Russell Rusty Bowers. Afterwards, uh, Adam Schiff had this to say to the news media. Well, you know, at the end of the day, we're dependent on the Justice Department. Uh, if we move down the route uh, with any witness um, of criminal contempt, um, so you know, we consider to we continue to consider what remedies we have with any recalcitrant witnesses, uh, including members of the House of Representatives. Um, and I don't have anything to announce on that subject today. Um, but again, I want to bring our focus back to what we just heard, uh, and what we just heard is the president was told over and over again by his attorney general, by his deputy attorney general, by the U.S. attorney he appointed in Georgia, uh, among others, that what he was telling the country was simply false. Uh, and you saw him go out time after time after being told way after way uh, that what he was saying was just a lie. Um, leading up to his speech on the ellipse where he continues to whip up this crowd with these lies. And tragically, the warning that Gabe Sterling gave that someone was going to get killed came all too much to fruition on January 6th when people outside this building did get killed because of that big lie, because of that incitement that Gabe Sterling warned against. Uh, and the fact is, the lie lives on. Uh, and with it, so does the danger. And, uh, and this is, I, I think, what, what these witnesses were so powerfully communicating. Um, if the President of the United States, the most powerful person in the world, can come down like a ton of bricks on an election worker like Andrea Moss and Ruby Freeman, uh, then they can come down on anyone. I think Judge Carter in California was right uh, when he said that there is evidence that Donald Trump and his associates engaged in a plot to overturn the election that violated multiple criminal laws. I think there's sufficient evidence to open that investigation now. Whether the Justice Department will conclude there's proof beyond a reasonable doubt, that'll be up to the Justice Department. Our role is different. Our role is to find the facts, to share them with the American people, and to prescribe remedies to keep our country safe. As we saw today, one of the things that's necessary for us to keep the country safe is to put this big lie to rest, to restore people's confidence in our elections, to push back on the idea that whenever you lose an election that's somehow rigged and illegitimate because that way goes the end of our democracy.